Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. Brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bike Radar podcast. Today, I'm joined by two of my favourite colleagues, Jack Luke and Matthew Loveridge, and we're going to take a look back on some of our favourite stories from 2020. So let's just get right into it, and I'll start with um, one of my favourite stories that Jack wrote this year, and I liked it so much because it was so far beyond the realms of what I would consider doing. Uh, Jack basically wrote an article about how he used his bicycle repair knowledge to repair his washing machine. Tell us a little bit more about that, Jack. Yeah, you've pretty much summed it up there, Simon. But I, earlier this year, the uh, door gasket of my washing machine was, I cannot describe how disgusting it was. I think perhaps years and years of putting muddy cycling kit had taken its toll. And internally, in an area you can't access, I might add, um, this really disgusting obstinate layer of mold had uh, developed so i decided i would take the whole washing machine apart bleach it clean it put it back together and earlier this year i did something similar uh, in that i found a disgusting old stand mixer in the street and i and i repaired it and i posted all about it on instagram and people were and no exaggeration to say astonished that i had done this and to me not to sound smug but like i didn't really get it like I was really satisfied that I got this f- wonderful stand mixer for free and, and I could do it. But like, I didn't really get the hype. And then when I did the washing machine, which to me was a fairly basic task, although quite involved in a bit of a, a faff, um, again, people were like, oh, it's amazing, you know, you go off and do this stuff. And I kind of thought like, well, why? You know, why do we, why are people surprised that uh, I can do this? Well, I mean, you know, I got you to replace a fuse on my coffee grinder recently, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that illustrates it perfectly. But I, I, you know, I kind of thought, what has given me the skills really and the confidence to do this? And really, it boils down to fixing bikes. Um, I've fixed my own bikes my whole life. I was never in a position growing up where I could ever afford to pay someone to fix my bike. So I very much 
learned through trial and error. And I think particularly because I had a bit of an interest in older bikes, I used to work also in a cycling charity, which basically recycled old bikes. I was exposed to just a huge amount of tech and some of it would be broken. Some of it would be very bad. And I think working through that stuff really gives you a basis of knowledge um, through which you can tackle other day-to-day maintenance tasks. And I kind of looked through each step in the washing machine and, and I wrote it in the article. And at every single point in fixing it, I could draw parallels with something I had done on the bike. And you um, you actually used sort of bike tools, didn't you? Yeah, literally, I mean, like tire levers to take the gasket on and off. And it's no exaggeration to say it's quite delicate, the gasket, it's quite floppy. And it's like fitting an open tubular. Like genuinely, I, I, could, I remember fitting like a challenge open tubular years ago and thinking, God, this is just like this gasket. Um, similarly, it was like a like an inlet for the gasket. And I used a trick I picked up for uh, refitting free hubs where you could put a zip tie around the poles of a free hub to kind of hold them shut. And I used a similar thing with this big kind of spring circlip. So I, I just kind of, I wrote something in celebration of the repairability of bicycles because despite public perception, the vast majority of bikes on the planet are based on a surprisingly narrow set of interchangeable standards and parts are readily available and making repairs, it just makes repairs easy, affordable and accessible to most people. And, that you know, there's no other industry I can think of where a resource like SI Shimano, which is Shimano's huge service info uh, website, actually exists. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point because, you know, obviously we're very nerdy about this stuff. And we spend a lot of time going on about how we hate all of the kind of various different bottom bracket standards there are. But in reality, all you really need is a, is a kind of press fit tool and that'll do you for most bottom bracket standards. And, and you know, even though we sort of bemoan how non-user friendly bottom brackets can be, they're actually, they're not that bad. You just kind of need the vaguely the right tool. So I, I was really impressed by this. I think, like you said, you perhaps hadn't quite realised that everyone else was sort of, well, not everyone else, but there there is a kind of ineptitude out there amongst the general public but this i mean I, this is still something i'm ne- never going to attempt but i probably i'm just going to call you up <laughs> next time my washing machine breaks Jack. <laughs> in in the article um you talk about defending the repairability of bikes and i know that we've seen a kind of industry trend towards a greater level of integration in bikes particularly when you've got everything sort of hidden on the inside on aero bikes um and a general move towards kind of proprietary parts do you think that repairability is under threat uh i think with the biggest most mainstream manufacturers probably but you know that's a very narrow number of bikes or a very small number of bikes really that are sold the majority of bikes are probably still based on square taper bottom brackets out there and for the general public learning how to maintain those I used to, I wouldn't say manage, but I used to work at fix your own bike sessions at that bike co-op I mentioned. And uh, before I before I worked there, I used to abuse it very much, and I learned a great deal there. But when people did come and use it, it was just astonishing how satisfied they were, realizing that it was actually all quite accessible and easy, um, and that they could do all this stuff themselves. And I think giving people that basis of knowledge through repairing bikes. I think would really do them a world of good outside of it. As for the the very top end, 
my concern is not so much repairability, it's more long-term availability of things like spares. Like, who's to say your one-piece integrated cockpit, which is absolutely dedicated to that bike, well, what if you crash and crack it in half in uh, eight years' time? Will you be able to get a replacement? That's more my concern, not necessarily the repairability. Because although, you know, uh, speaking from experience, routing a cable through a badly designed integrated cockpit is the worst thing it's still really quite basic in terms of skills. And of course, there's a difference between being able to do it and doing it well. But really, the mechanics of working on bikes isn't that hard. Um, you know, even things like building wheels is treated a bit like a dark art, but it's fairly simple if you can do the maths and kind of invest the time into it. So anyway, I urge you to read it. I was very, very pleased with it. It was picked up kind of outside of the cycling world as well. And I got lots of uh, pats on the back and it felt me, made me feel very smug and happy. How about you, young Matthew? What do you think your top piece of this year has been? On an incredibly trivial note, I wrote a column earlier this year uh, called Why Every Bike Should Have a Kickstand. And this came off the back <laughs> of... A uh, it was a bikepacking trip we talked about in a recent podcast where we were riding quite heavy e-bikes loaded down with panniers full of stuff and stopping regularly and just having the ability to get off your bike, flip down a kickstand and your bike just stand there on its own. Sounds incredibly silly, but it was a joy and it made such a difference and it made me think... Why don't we put kickstands on other bicycles? Because they're incredibly useful. And of course, like when you've got a racing bike or, you know, a nice light road bike or, I mean, we tend to focus on weight and stuff. We don't think about that kind of practicality and we lean our bikes against walls and things, which can damage them. You can scratch your levers. But actually, if somebody put real effort into it, it would probably be possible to devise an elegant kickstand that, perhaps integrated nicely with the frame or attached to it in a way that wasn't hideous and impractical. This generated a predictable amount of hate from the uh, commenters. <laughs> and, I mean, it it was slightly tongue-in-cheek, and I haven't gone and put kickstands on, like, carbon road bikes because actually that would be quite difficult anyway. But I do think there's a point to be made about practicality. Yeah, completely. Like, why on your bike packing bike, which, bear in mind, you've got bloody bag strapped head to toe on it. Why wouldn't you put a kickstand on it? Um, we've got one of the Pletcher double leg ones, the huge heavy duty ones on our tandem. Now, obviously that's a pretty stupid use case, but I don't know how the hell we lived without it beforehand because picking that thing up was just hell on earth and having it on a kickstand is is an absolute joy. It also makes me think of our former colleague, now of Velo News, Ben Delaney, Whenever I post a photo of my bike lying on the ground for a sweet, sweet gram, he always sends me quite an abusive Instagram message. It's one of his pet <laughs> hates. So I wonder if perhaps he would be on board with the concept of uh, kickstands on every bike. You know, I think, I think like you said, Matthew, it prompted a bit of a response. And I think it's one of those things that, as you say, these kind of nods to practicality that would be incredibly useful for most kind of amateur cyclists are something that we, or so many of us, kind of, you know, in that kind of quest to look pro, think we're just, we're too cool for, you know? And it's the same, you know, obviously we talk about this all the time, but it's the same with mudguards, right? Wouldn't it be amazing if every high-end carbon race bike or every road bike just had mudguard mounts it, just for when? So when you wanted them, you could put them on, but they just don't because they're not, you know, they don't wear them in the world tour. So why would you, right? 
this is one of these really tedious things. I never think it's particularly helpful comparing bikes to cars or motorbikes. But, you know, imagine a motorbike without mudguards or a kickstand. It'd be deemed wildly impractical. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I think, yeah, why don't we just adopt that mindset? I do think it's quite funny, actually, when it comes to practicality, that in, again, making a car analogy, in the same way that there's been a shift in the cars that people buy, away from things that are objectively practical, like small family hatchbacks, towards cars that have a kind of more aspirational lifestyle thing. So a lot of people are buying cars now that kind of look like they would go off-road, but actually probably aren't going to. And you've kind of got a similar thing with bikes, where a lot of people, I think, are very drawn to the the roughy-tufty aesthetics of gravel bikes with their slightly chunkier tyres and their ability to carry luggage. So we are actually seeing a certain kind of practicality become become kind of appealing but then we're overlooking like classic actual practicality. I think another example would be um uh what do you call them like chain covers as mm. well. Like um because nobody puts those on serious performance bikes and they can be really annoying because they can rattle around and stuff. But actually, if you're wearing normal clothing rather than cycling kit and you're doing practical everyday cycling, not having an oily chain next to your trouser leg is a very very good idea, but it's something or that most of us chain. <laughs> or a wax chain sorry simon bromley wax chain but yeah it's it we're very selective about the practical things that we choose to embrace and the ones that we reject i think well I, that's a really good point and and a, a chain guard you know i hadn't I hadn't even thought about it but a chain guard would also probably be quite aero i should get one for my time trial bike there you go Simon, also, just think you completely reduce the chance of any contamination. So any mid-ride reduction in performance is is negated. You're, you know, know you're going to have a clean chain at the end of a ride. That ceramic <laughs> speed-driven drivetrain, the one that's still vaporware that we've been talking about for over a year now, I think, it one of its claims was to be the most aero drivetrain, and it was partly because it was almost fully shrouded. So, yeah, there you go gains there you go so time trial bikes for 2022 maybe so they'll all come with uh, chain guards and as you say jack the better for it because reducing drivetrain contamination is all important you sicko So this, you know, this is my first year working for Bike Radar um, full time. So I, I had a couple of good things, and um, you know, I'm, I'm going to mention a few. Um, so one of my first, one of my real pleasures early on in the year was um, meeting Graham Obrey and doing a small feature on one of his, you know, crazy custom bikes. And he he is every bit the sort of eccentric genius that you uh, that you kind of imagine. So that that was a real pleasure because he'd always been a hero. Um, one of my other favourite things I did was the final time trial preview for the uh, Tour de France, which I then missed because I went out for a walk or something with my wife because I'd been cycling the previous day. So, <laughs> so I missed the best time trial of the year, unfortunately. But you, did you guys watch it? No, Simon, I was too busy out enjoying my bike in the real world. <laughs> yeah, I think I was too. <laughs> but I did enjoy oh, reading well. your coverage on bikeradar.com. It was well, that, yeah. sensational. So, that, so that's good. Thanks very much, Jack. But um I think yeah, I think my favorite um my favorite article that I wrote this year was um my bike radar builds piece on my a it's a Planet X Exocet 2 time trial bike. And basically it's a kind of it's a it's a really well v- vaguely cheap frame that I've kind of customized over the last few years. And uh, it's even customized down to the kind of 
it's got a, like a different front derailleur hanger because the one that came with it was terrible and it broke and Planet X couldn't help me find a replacement one. So I had to kind of find my own one online. I brought one from AliExpress, blah, blah, blah. But um, what I like about that bike is it kind of allows me to go much, much faster than all of my friends, even though I don't really put out any more power than them. So yeah, I really like it. Simon, I should add, is on Teams right now where we're recording this. He's looking wistfully over at this bike as he tells you all about this. I can see the, the love in his eyes. <laughs> it's next to me. This bike. Yeah, it's next to me. <laughs> I I really enjoyed that piece that you wrote. Um, I think there's a lot of value in these things where you talk about something which has a real series of like personal choices that have led to the final product. Because obviously we write on Bike Radar are a lot about bikes on the market that you buy as a complete bike and we're reviewing those because that's a huge part of our job essentially but and that's a very different animal to taking a bike that's kind of been put together organically over a period of time and you've got real financial considerations about like saving money here trying to get the most performance for pound and i just i really enjoyed that piece i really recommend anyone reads it because i think it shows that we are a little bit grounded because i know it's very easy to assume that um, we only talk about new and very expensive bikes, but we do also ride regular bikes at Bike Radar. I might add that it has taken Simon to near glories throughout the season as well, where you posted something like, I don't know, what, half dozen second places at our local time trial loop? Yeah, I, keep, I kept getting beaten by um, a local cyclist called Nick Livermore, who is just an absolute monster and an incredible baker. And also a really nice guy. So that was upsetting. But also um, another guy turned up who was kind of like an ex-Ironman world champion or something like that. And he kept beating me on his road bike, which was very sad. <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, you've kind of illustrated that with this, I'm not going to call it humble, but I will. Your humble time trial bike, is it's still completely possible to go very, very fast in what is, relatively speaking, an affordable bike. Yeah, I think, you know, I, th I think what I really like about it is, is, as Matthew said, it's kind of been built up on a budget over a number of years. And it's not a brand new frame by any stretch. I think it <coughs> came out in something like, you know, 2011 or something like that. And I picked it up on sale for 500. I picked the frame up on sale for 500 pounds back in 2014 or something. And um you know, it's got everything on it is, is kind of pretty much very cheap. Obviously, it's got a couple of expensive power meters on it now that I've you know, acquired <laughs> over the years or, or used for testing. But, it, you know, it's kind of got a 105 rear derailleur that I salvaged from Jack. It's got, you know, a kind of, yeah, 105 brakes I brought off eBay, a kind of aluminium slash carbon deep section wheel, a cheap disc wheel I picked off eBay, some, some very fast very delicate tires with latex in tubes, like a homemade wax chain, all, all of these sort of various things that didn't really cost the earth, but, um, but actually kind of help. And, you know, it doesn't have electronic shifting or anything like that. And I haven't been to the wind tunnel, but yeah, it's like, it puts me in a good position and I really like riding it. I liked as well that you described it rightfully. So as your fastest bike, but you refused to divulge <laughs> the weight of it, which really, really wound up a few commenters. <laughs> Yeah, it's just because it doesn't matter. I think, you know, it's actually, you know, I think it, it's the fastest bike I own, but it's also the heaviest bike I own by quite a bit. And it's over nine kilos. And, you know, if we if we said, a you know, if we do a YouTube video or something like that or an article and we say, oh, this race bike, if we say it weighs over eight kilos, most people come on the comments and they say, oh, that bike's too heavy for a race bike. You know, it will be so slow. It will be horrible. But actually, 
you know, the weight, and even on, as you say, the kind of sporting courses that we have around South Bristol, just doesn't make a difference. I want to see you do a hill climb on that bike. <laughs> <laughs> well, so there are some hill climbs for where it probably is a faster bike, you know, like, I think, so Jack and Felix did Burrington Coombe earlier this year, and there was a chap there who rode a full TT setup, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah, and he did a pretty good time up. It's a very long, gradual climb, and I've no doubt you would have done very well, Simon, but you refused to go, presumably for the fear that I would maybe beat you. Yeah, that's just I don't, I don't like the hill climbs. Jack's, Jack's, Jack's better at them than I am. I don't really get on with them. But, but yeah, like it's as you say, it's a kind of you know, I've, I've, I've been, I've been lucky enough to ride some very fancy, very expensive bikes this year. But um, but this one's definitely the fastest, and it's and it's really nice to kind of just be reminded of what actually matters when it comes to making a bike go fast. Now, going fast isn't everything, but it is for me. Have you ever ridden a time trial bike, Matthew? Do you know what? I don't think I ever have. I um I have ridden a road bike with clip-on TT bars. Um, I did one ill-fated team time trial. <laughs> that's a British university one uh, and it was a, a three up time trial and one of my teammates partway around the course his clip on came loose went into his front wheel and launched him off the bike so we finished no. after Blimey. with uh, uh, me essentially hanging onto the wheel of my much much stronger friend wanting to die and then our oh. time didn't count yeah. anyway because the third rider didn't finish <laughs> oh God, that was the that beginning story. and end of my time trial career <laughs> that's a really good story i've never heard that one it was wow. terrible yeah well if you'd like to enter the bike radar team into a team time trial this year you know there are a few i mean i've been trying to get jack to do a 100 mile tandem time trial with me but um i'm not sure that's going to happen anything worse than <laughs> i think we'd fall out simon i don't think we'd be friends by the end of it <laughs> <laughs> But you've, you've had a go on it, Jack, haven't you? You've had a ridden it around the car park, right? I have. I've, I've, had, I've played on a few time trial bikes. Again, I had a fairly ill-fated experience earlier this year, which we won't go into. But um, I have ridden your bike and it feels properly, properly rapid. Yeah, yeah. I, I would love to have a proper rip on it when I call in a 13 grand specialised shiv for you with uh, the most expensive wheels I can find and you show up and still only come second at the time trial. <laughs> That was my next question is, are you then going to get some ridiculous thing to test that? And, and will you continue to ride your beloved customised Planet X if that's the case? Yeah, I think I would, you know, I, I would love to, you know, I would love to test time trial bikes because I think they're a kind of underreported on section. And that, you know, they are a very small niche, you know, like time trial bikes are very expensive and not that many people actually buy them. You know, the triathlon market is arguably... Well, it is much bigger. It's not arguably much bigger. Um, but it's, yeah, I, you know, the, the benefit of this bike is it is completely custom. So it, it's totally set up how I like it in terms of position, drive, tra- you know, it's, it's got sort of 42, 56 chain rings with a wide range cassette at the back and, and, and you know, the, the fastest tires I can find. You know, if I called in even a top of the range you know, say I called in a specialised shiv, for example, a lot of those come with sort of SRAM, ETAP, Axis group sets, and I'd be like, oh, that front chain ring's a bit small, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so um, and, you know, replicating the position might be difficult. So I think, yeah, there's something about riding a bike that is you're so familiar with 
yeah so we'll see i i think i think i still i still will keep riding it but but you know that said if if some brand wants to get in touch and send me you know a totally customized uber bike to go as you say come second at the chew lake tt then yeah you know don't 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 be shy anyway those were some of our favorite stories from 2020 obviously there were many more that we didn't get to talk about so please do go onto bikeradar.com have a little look through our archives obviously leave a comment on the pod plug for this on the website if there's anything we missed tell us what your favorite articles of this year were and as always thank you for listening don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast leave us a positive review because we love your positive feedback <laughs> and <laughs> and thanks very much for listening Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bye.